0: I watched a hawk take a pigeon down in the middle of the quad at 10 when I was a freshman, and it was fantastic. It was a bunch of rich kids from, like, uh, Long Island gathered in a circle. Just they were, At first they were like, wow, it's a hawk! And then it just <laughs> tore this pigeon, like, limb from limb. And there was just a bunch of, like, shocked 18-year-olds.
1: Hey, everybody. A few weeks ago, one of my best friends, Scott McWilliams, died of brain cancer. And Scott wasn't just... My personal friend, uh, our families were friends, we we're first and foremost great herping buddies. Uh, and Scott was a great naturalist, nature lover around Philadelphia, great Philadelphian, uh, and in his memory, I wanted to repost an episode we had him on in 2016. Hope
2: you enjoy.
3: And what are we listening to right now? We're listening to a spot breasted Oreo, your life bird, you lucky sucker, you. Yes, indeed, 604.
2: This is a great trip. This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Love Nature.
1: another episode of the urban wildlife podcast i'm here with oh this is billy brown and i'm here with tony Crowsdale. and we've also got today
4: Allie herwitz
1: and scott mcwilliams those are our guests um and we're gonna start off with a an actual comment that we got
2: tony yeah this is a legitimate actual comment so we had a comment that says timber rattlesnakes just saved my brain on a super boring work day much love urban wildlife dude and that is from Kate Atkins from Cutbank, Montana. Cool. You don't get much more urban than Cutbank, Montana. No, you don't. <laughs> or timber rattlesnakes. Or timber rattlesnakes. <laughs> Can you um tell us where you work? What you
4: actually both I and my co-guest host or whatever we are are both ER doctors in Philadelphia. I work at Methodist Hospital in South Philly. And I work
0: at Pennsylvania Hospital in Old City.
1: And so both of these people are herping buddies of mine. And Scott, who throws more nature books at me than anyone else,
0: the much more botanically interesting Pennsylvania Hospital, hmm.
1: and, and then <laughs>
4: in... <laughs> we're we're very working class chenopodium type neighborhood <laughs> down in South Philly.
1: Yeah, and Ali Ali is the, the the botanist in our in our crew. We're gonna listen on this show to two pieces. One is a tour of plants growing out of sidewalks and streets around philadelphia the other one is a tony expedition to miami where he picks up some lifers and gets deep with the guys from the aba
2: right but they weren't in miami that was that was pre-gaming
1: he was pre-gaming in where was that maryland or delaware delaware
2: the uh, delaware city delaware at the american birding association headquarters
1: there you go before we get into that i want to ask everybody again hey if you're liking us Please spread the like and go to Stitcher and iTunes and tell everybody how much you like us, so other people can find us
2: and make comments. And because we've been getting, we haven't getting a fair amount of likes, and we've been getting plenty of views and downloads. Um, obviously, we'd always like more, but we have we got very few comments, and we'd like more. So, so you, feedback is great.
1: You can leave them there. You can leave them on our Facebook page. You can follow us at Herb Wildlife Cast as um, our Twitter handle, uh, and you can always email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Can you just really fast say your name and your title?
5: Lena Strube, director for Chrysler Herbarium at Rutgers University. When we start walking now, pay attention to the green stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that are in cracks, like this. So these are cracked weeds, or crack <laughs> species. And the ones that are in the curb, and the curb is, of course, where you have a, some difference in elevation like this, like along it. The, the ones that are in the curb are much more protected than the ones that are in the cracks. The, the, in a sidewalk crack, you get trampled on. If you're a crack in the asphalt parking lot or in the street, you get run over all the time. And then you're going to see plants in the, both of those habitats, but they're going to be different species. So we find a, about 100 species in the in the curb and we have found about maybe 12 species that can survive in the crabs, which is much, much harsher, because they get just stepped on them, you know. This is Chenopodium blightum, mm. and Chenopodium blightum usually can be like this big, and here it is this tiny, and you can, it's a, so it's an amaranth. And if you look at the leaf, it looks like somebody bit out the tip of the leaf. But these leaves are usually this big. So everything is smaller, everything is more miniaturized when you're in this area, when you're, you're going to find things. We don't know yet if that's because of the environment making them smaller, or if it's because that if you're smaller genetically, you survive better here. We're working on that right now at Rutgers, doing common garden experiments, collecting seeds from many different things, growing them in one environment, and see what's genetic and what's environmental. Huh. This is Agina procumbens, I bet. That's what I would guess looking closely at it. So this is related to carnations. Same family as carnations. Opposite leaves, tiny little thing. This is a, a plant you often find near seashores and in cities are often influenced by high salt and hot and sandy, like the same kind of thing that you find at the sandy a seashore a rocky seashore with the salt. We actually found several new species for New Jersey in the parking lots, including two sedges that are seashore sedges, that show up in the parking lots because of the salt. There you go. This is clammy goosefoot. It has the best name ever. So Clammy means that it's sticky, and goosefoot because the leaves look a little bit like goose feet, right? So clammy goosefoot.
1: This is Billy's note that we can't walk three feet. I think we've in half an hour. We've gone like three blocks.
5: You have you have a heritage right here of weedy plants that have come from Europe mostly, and nowadays from other places as well. So this um, adventitious botany, or you know, rural rural botany, where you go out and look for crazy things that show up in harbors and old city areas, is a whole field in Europe. There are botanists oh. that. They, they are, that's what they do, finding the first record of that species in that city or that, you know, and they just try to get all the rare species. They don't care if they're invasive, they don't care if they are, you know, from wherever. It's like, oh my God, here's this potentilla from Soviet Union, I got it, you know, <laughs> and they would go and find these things just in the one only place where it grew on that heap in that harbor or that, you know, outpost on the pier or whatever. So. So we should do more of that. We should do more local botany right here on the feet, right? To learn more about thing. Yeah. Not that rare and endangered species are not good or interesting or fascinating, but this you can do at your lunch break. Here you have a flowery broadleaf plantain. So you can see flowers at a tiny, tiny size right there. This is knotweed, Polygonum aviculare, right here. We have yellow... Wood sorrel for the first time, tiny little clover-like leaves. On the the, um, plantago there. Yeah. In some places, you know, it's like this big. Yeah. Do you think it's evolution or is it... it, uh... We don't know yet, we're collecting seeds. Collect seeds from... You can do this at home, people do this. (laughs) (laughs) You collect seeds from five very different looking plantagos, same species. You put them in five pots in your windowsill. The seeds. You see if they grow. They grow in the same environment in your windowsill at home in your kitchen. Yeah. Do they look different or do they look the same? Then you have know something about what, if. They what are I find more. appealing about that is people think of a city as the end of nature. No, no, no. And yet it's a di- it's a it's a selective force driving. Yeah. Uh, driving uh, evolution that is greater than outside the city. Yes, so this, the evolution that happens in cities is faster than happens on Galapagos Island. So. But seriously, this is like a filter. If you think of the city as a filter, that you have all the variation, natural variation, and only the <laughs> fittest ones, only the ones that can survive in the city, in this really extreme environment, they're the ones that survive, and then they are becoming like a subset, or, a sub, you know, a specialized type that lives in cities. And that probably happens in every city all over. You know, so that you find that type both in Philadelphia and Boston, and it has happened independently.
1: Do you ever look at, or people look at cities that, a diversity related to how long that portion of the city has been inhabited yeah. because here you're talking about cracks in Belgium, I'm like, it's nice here it's more interesting right close to the waterfront which was the first yep. area settled Yes. Okay. so right. go to
5: the waterfront and compare right, that's what I'm saying yeah, yeah. Yeah. take a hula hoop, and the, yeah, that's what we use hula hoops yeah. for, for this circle you know, compare number of species here number of species, you know, there yeah. but, you know, you can do all it's kinds of it, interesting yeah. small scale <laughs> studies ow, citizen science
0: Alright, well, one thing that, that I thought yeah. of listening to that, uh, to your desk, it, it sounds like she's actively doing some work on this idea that plants become more diminutive in, it's in the, an the nature versus nurture yeah. question. And yeah. I like it in, ter- I, like in terms of like island biogeography, the whole idea that yeah. species that are isolated on an island tend to become diminutive, so you get like pygmy, rhinos, and that kind of thing.
1: But that's about, re- it, could, it could relate, it's about resource availability. I
4: don't know, I'm interested in whether the diminutive plant thing applies to the entire plant or just the leaves, like with bonsai. I mean, if you go, go along with gardens and look at their bonsai when they're blooming or when they're fruiting and you'll see like their bonsai pomegranate has diminutive leaves, but normal sized fruit and flowers. No, is
0: that just from excessive pruning? In other words, like if something's yes. constantly nipping off the leaves on an earth. No, no,
4: no, no, it's not It's not even that they're, the leaves are necessarily being constantly nipped off. It's just basically related to the root restrictions over time. Okay.
2: Well, what being that research? plants, they use an outside entity for their reproduction, right? They use wind or a bird or an insect or water. So you would think that the flower is still going to need...
4: To be the same size. Right. To so we need yeah. to find that out. That would be interesting to just look at around the yeah. city. I will now be doing Isn't that. Is that like the bees are smaller
2: rocks? or the wind is different? Right. Or,
4: so you think right. in order to be reproductively successful, you'd still have to preserve your fruit and your flower size.
2: Yeah. Hmm. And, and this is the perfect time for someone to send us a comment if they could let us know if people...
4: Midget chicory flowers, anyone?
1: Tell, us, tell us about yeah. your plantains. Okay. I'm going to make a slight detour because I noticed that when we walk around um, looking at plants growing out of cracks in Philadelphia, it's like they're around like old like tree plantings or vacant lots. They're always either like some kind of aster family plant. We're all rolling our eyes because we're sick of them already. Or amaranths. Mm And so I would like to celebrate my favorite amaranth. What?
4: I was going to say to be fair to the asters. Not that I'm sick of them; it's that they make me feel totally inadequate. I just am overwhelmed. I'm always always
1: sending Allie pictures and being like, "What is this?" She's like, "It's some kind of
4: aster," and then I just I feel like I've disappointed you every time. Well, it's because
2: asters or orchids, the two families, they're the two most common, the most diverse, yeah, plant families in the world. So you know, and we don't have many orchids. In this part of the world. In West in Philly. The, no, not so many. But there's plenty of asters. So.
1: And there's so also... But I can...
0: Grisland, Brooklyn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can ID more of the amaranths. And in particular, I'm a, fr- a fan of our lamb's quarters um, as our synanthropic organism. Synanthropic
2: organism. Of the episode.
1: Um, in that it's a, it's a... There are two species. There's one that's European. Um, probably more than two species. But... Uh, the ones that pop up in, in cities, uh, one that's, that's American, one that's European, both have sort of similar histories in that they were both cultivated, both are cultivated, at least the European album, um, Chinapodium album is, is cultivated still. Um, but it's hard to tell like where it comes from, you know where it's cultivated and where it's feral and wild versions begin and end. It's something that like, you see growing up everywhere around cities, it's a plant that's, like, been growing in cities in Europe since we basically had cities, and you can eat it. Synanthropic organism. I'm going to follow Tony um, to Delaware City and then beyond to Miami FLA uh, to, to explore actually a parallel topic to the plant topic, um, looking at exotics, look at what grows in cities, um, and then sort of, like, linking into the, birder, the weird birder obsession with life lists. All right, Tone, get the plane.
2: All right, so I'm here at the grounds of Baptist Hospital in M- Miami, and uh,
3: so who are you, what are you doing, what are we looking for? I'm Wes Biggs, what I do is show people birds, and right now we're looking for Egyptian goose, which ain't here, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they were a few weeks ago. You can hear mitered and red-masked conures, parrots in the background. So. For my ABA list, I can't count
2: either of those two birds, uh, although I've actually seen at least mitered parakeet in the wild um, because they're not countable because no one's figured out whether their population is sustainable or no one's done the, the study official study to, to determine that yet. It's, it's kind of arbitrary. Um, but where can you, so this Egyptian goose we're looking for that is countable, where in the United States of America can you find it, and what kind of habitats?
3: Well, it's um, found in urban habitats, like right where we are in the pond in front of Baptist Hospital in Miami on Kendall Drive. A month or so ago, I was here four, four or five weeks ago and had a couple of birds. I've seen them on the campus at Florida Atlantic University in Boca. I've seen them down at the um, water treatment plant on Virginia Key, which is where we're going next. <laughs> <laughs> to look for this thing. They're around somewhere, it just seems like this particular time of the year they're nesting and they're harder to find. The next bird I get will be
2: ABA bird 600, so, which will most likely be one of these introduced species rather than a, a native. I don't need that many native um, Florida birds left. I have about four regular breeders that I need to see. The rest are you know, uh, Caribbean vagrants or these introduced species. So what are their other um, targets and which ones are native
3: versus which ones are uh, introduced? Well, the big time native we're going to look for a little bit later on is mangrove cuckoo. Secretive bird. Numbers declined in recent years, probably due to West Nile. At least that's what seems to be the case. And we're looking for that in a,
2: in a park, right? Not, not, not like the Everglades, like in a super air, wild area either. Yeah,
3: it's a, it's, a, it's a park with mangrove fringe. It's Black Point Park and Marina. There's a lot of mangrove mangrove habitat there, and I've seen the bird there in the past. So I know there's, you know, at least in the past, I've been there. I haven't seen one in the last year, but that's the that's the native we're going to be looking for. And other exotics are just north of here, and in, in the Kendallwood neighborhood, we're going to be looking for bulbuls, red-whiskered bulbul. And that's a bird from Asia. I've seen them in all over Thailand and um, Malaysia. Yeah, and we've been looking for spot-rested oil. We've already been to the University of Miami campus and A.D. Barnes Park and haven't had any spot breast orioles singing on, on territory like one would hope they would be by now. And I have had them right here at Baptist Hospital and also in the Kendallwood neighborhood. So I just got my 600th ABA
2: bird, a red whiskered bulbul. A pair. A pair of red whiskered bulls in Kendall. Kendall. Kendall, Florida, um, which is a, a suburb of Miami. But out here, the difference between a suburb and the city doesn't look hardly any different to me. <laughs> So that was pretty cool. This is a very appropriate bird for me, because I've, for my six-on the bird, because I had traveled to Asia quite a bit and seen that bird in the wild in Asia. So it's kind of cool to see it here, a naturalized population in an urban environment. And also, I remember as a kid, I would look at the Peterson Guide and see the Red whisker Bulbul in it and, and be fascinated by it. And it was cool to see it in Asia, and now it's cool to see it here. So I've come full circle.
3: And this is a bird we know when it started. Hurricane Donna, 1960, destroyed an aviary where they were breeding Red Whiskled Bulbuls. In the next spring, the spring of 1961, we had Red Whiskled Bulbuls breeding all over South Miami and, and Kendall. Okay, Wes, so what are, what's our quarry right now?
2: Spot-breasted Oriole. And we're looking for it in a residential neighborhood?
3: Residential neighborhood North Miami. So what's the, do you know the story behind this bird? No, just that the locals have been reporting it in the you know a pair of them there in that neighborhood for the last several years, and a friend of mine had them there last year and had them there about a week ago. The most likely scenario is that um, they're escaped cage birds. There's um, a rumor that a, uh, a pet store had a cage full of them, and some local and this is like in the 1940s or late late 40s early 50s. And some locals just happened to go in the pet store and saw how crowded the birds were in the cage and uh, complained and uh, came back a week or so later and the condition hadn't changed. So they threatened to go get the law. And when they came back, the birds were gone. And the story is the guy just went to the back of the store, opened up the cage and let them all go. We don't know absolutely positively for sure, but it's it's considered an exotic as opposed to a range extender.
2: And, um... So we're looking for short-tailed hawk, and I just read, I read in that Florida guide that they really like Eurasian collared doves and may actually be breeding more in urban areas to access that prey. Have you found that yourself?
3: Definitely. We're finding them breeding in, in, in city parks and county parks, in, in suburban areas uh, where they never bred before, and finding them more commonly hunting in, even in urban areas. So the, the population definitely is going up. It's one of those few cases that we know of where an exotic has led to an increase uh, in numbers of a endangered native. So exotics aren't all bad all the time. Usually, but not always. This is also the, situ- the situation is improving with Cooper's hawks. That's something we never used to get in urban areas. Now we're getting them in urban areas all the time, and the thought is almost... Um, I don't think there's any other possibility, but the, the advent of uh, Eurasian collar doves has, has increased the uh, numbers of Cooper's hawks in, in breeding in Florida. Interesting. Well, we get in Philly, we get
2: Cooper's hawks everywhere. You know, maybe there's a general increase too, but who knows. But the Eurasian collar dove is a fairly interesting story. That's a, a bird that's spread all over the uh,
3: continent, starting in Florida, right? In Homestead, Florida, the first nest is found at James Archer Smith Hospital in Homestead. Back in 1984, I believe, 84, 85. How how did it arrive in America? What's the thought? Um, The research that's been done indicates that they probably got here on their own from the Bahamas, where they were introduced as a a cage bird. And that bird in Europe colonized Europe from Turkey, naturally, though. Exactly. It's done the same thing now in the New World that it did in, in Europe. They came out of Asia Minor in the 30s, and within 30, 35 years swept across the entire European continent all the way to Iceland. Well, they died out in Iceland because it just a little bit too cold for them, but it's a common backyard bird throughout uh, the British Isles. And they're found in urban areas in Europe. tell you the truth, I don't know for sure. Well, I can tell you this much. In the States, particularly in Florida, they're in urban areas and suburban areas and they're in... Agricultural, right? They're in agricultural areas and, and they... They go to. They're always someplace in fairly close proximity to human habitation. I've never seen them in a totally wild area. There, they'll be in areas where they had to fly across 30 or 40 miles of wild area to get to a barn and an isolated farm somewhere. But there they are. They're still close to people, but they went through a wilderness area to get there. Okay. So I'm not sure if it's quite like that in Europe or not. Tell you the truth, maybe that. The birds we've got, although they look exactly like any other European or Eurasian collar dove, maybe uh, the ones that, we, that came here probably from the Bahamas, maybe were a, a lineage that had been cage birds and raised in captivity for generation after generation after generation and just are more uh, attuned to being close proximity to humans than the ones that came out of Asia Minor. But the interesting thing is, no other species in the world has done what this bird has done and they did it twice. Yeah. <laughs> colonized all of Europe in 30 years, and colonized all of North America in 30 years. Uh-huh. It's pretty staggering. I guess they're not really
2: invasive because they're they're staying in these, you know, ur- you know, urban suburban areas, agricultural areas, and they don't seem to be competing with native species, and they're providing a food source for uh, raptors, native raptors.
3: Exactly. They're, they're slower flying and fatter than a morning dove, so they're easier for a raptor to catch. So you're thinking maybe um, a young raptor or maybe a raptor that's just not the best bird catcher maybe is now going to survive because it has collared doves instead of faster, smarter, sleeker morning doves. But uh, you know, there was a thought that collared doves were going to push out morning doves. And in some areas it seems like there are fewer morning doves now be in, in, because there are more collared doves. But then in many other areas you don't see any reduction in, in morning doves at all.
2: Okay, I'm here with Jeff Gordon, president of the American Birding Association, and George Armistead, who is the events coordinator for the um, American Birding Association, and my good, well, they're all my good buddies, but also Matt Haley, who is a local ornithologist, a uh, PhD student at the Drexel University at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. You are the birding organization, like specifically for recreational birding, the organization for recreational bird is people take their, their lists seriously. People are very interested in getting birds on their list various ways, and one of the ways you have added more birds to the list are these introduced species from you know, other parts of the world that have established viable populations, and what I find really interesting is think, the majority of those species are in urban areas, would you agree? Yeah, oh. absolutely. Now, I mean, once you get past that
6: kind of unholy trio of, um, you know, rock pigeon, European starling, and house sparrow, which, you know, are introductions of exotic species from quite a long time ago that have spread, you know, and, and really, I guess, came over here in many cases before America was heavily urbanized and has spread into all kinds of rural habitats and, and even, um, you know, wilder habitats in some cases, it does seem like if you look at the recent additions to
2: the checklist, yeah, there are, there are things in urban areas. And have you, both of you personally, gone and, and gotten those birds for your list? Is that...
7: I've gone, like I, I've seen some of the Miami specialties, like for our, our ABA rally in San Diego um, two years ago, we, we tallied the... Oh, geez, what do they call it now? The orange yeah. bishop? Or, or no, there was nut the uh, nutmeg right.
2: Which probably <laughs> yeah. is going to be scaly breasted munia, but. Right. Yeah, nutmeg mannequin. Yeah, yeah a nutmeg or scaly breasted munia, which is the same bird, actually. Yeah. So. The little cage bird. Um,
6: yeah, I've, I've seen um, some of those Florida birds. Um, I used to lead bird tours to South Florida, so we did, you know, go and see red-risked bulbils and spot-breasted orioles and stuff. Uh, quite regularly. I did fairly recently go and see the um, the Nandia parakeets, and I actually made a search to go see, uh, you know, the dwindling budgerigars on the on the west coast of Florida, but I have not made um, any attempt to go after purple swamp hen or Egyptian goose. um, I got got one
7: fun one. When coming back, it might have been from San Diego. I got stuck in Phoenix mm-hmm. and I went out for dinner and at night a uh-huh. flock of the the lovebirds went by. Yeah. It was it rosy-faced lovebirds, right?
2: Yeah. Peach, peach, it's peach uh, I think it's on the list as rosy-faced, no, no, but ros- when ros- I face, was
6: right. when Peach faced in the pet trade, rosy-faced on the checklist. Right.
2: Yeah. About how many regularly occurring birds would you say are in North America? Like 700-some. Let's see, how does that work? It's hard because there's also, you know, people who aren't birders might not know this, but there's, we get visited regularly by seabirds that breed as far away as as like New Zealand and, you know, I, you know the Falkland Islands, you know, so, and they spend their summer, our, our, their winter, in our, you know, off our coast, and those, those are regular birds. But we also get um, those count on the list, and we have our breeding birds, and so I, how many species are just vagrants, do you think, on the list?
7: Fewer than 700 breeding birds and then another several dozen that occur annually but do not breed here. So it's probably somewhere in the low 700s that are annual
2: uh, would be my guess. And then, and then, so a lot of those birds, hundreds of those birds, are birds that may have been seen only once or twice or three times. Uh, about how many of the birds on the list are introduced, would you say? Maybe less than two dozen. Yeah, I would think it's in that
6: ballpark. There's... Uh... Six hundred and sixty nine code one and code two birds. So that means I believe basically breeding birds. Mm-hmm. You know, just like George was saying. You know, like anything, um, there's a, a very steep curve that sets in where, you know, the first hundred are easy, the second two hundred are yeah. almost as easy. You know, going five as you well know, going from six or five ninety five to six hundred is a
2: heck of a lot harder than going from Four ninety five to five hundred, but it, it occurred to me, I'm like, well, if I want to make a push, if I'm actually going to get serious and try to get to seven hundred, I need to get all these introduced birds, and that's what bringing you know one of the reasons I'm going to Florida. I'm really excited about it, and I'm also excited about it in the context of this podcast because you know while I am an urban birder, George lives in Philly with me, not in, in my house, um, <laughs> but uh, we 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 do bird Philly together, um, and we do a lot of you know we really like birding the city, and so I, I like that the ABA councils introduce species because it's in a way validating of the urban environment, you know, the novel ecosystem, which is, you know, it, it is, an, it is part of the, our world now that we have these places that are going to be changed indefinitely and they have, you know, invasive species that are, are you know, got to naturalize. I guess a lot of these species aren't even invasive. They're, they're naturalized because they're not leaving the cities. Yeah.
6: No, you know, as far as anyone knows, red whisker bulbuls aren't hurting anything. Yeah. You know, in, in the U S at least, yeah um collared doves may only be providing food for cooper's hawks as far as we can tell (laughs) yeah yeah and i think that's you know it's really interesting so much of birding or any kind of pursuit it really is like philosophical and it's what people choose to recognize as you know i like this i don't like this uh kind of thing and i think there's a real evolution within birding that mirrors kind of evolution in the wider community. I, I think there used to be almost an obsession with the idea of we want all our birds to be 100% natural, to have no taint of human anything, agency, you know, even people used to get into, you, know, you talk about the crazy things that sports fans or other fanatics argue about, you know, like um, might that bird have ridden for part of its trip across the ocean on a ship? and does that invalidate it as a sighting? And I really feel like we're moving in a direction of saying, you know what, like it, hate it, or anywhere in between, we are in the Anthropocene, and humans are really the architects of a tremendous amount of what goes on in the environment. And I think to a lot of us, kind of ignoring what's going on in these novel and urban habitats just feels like the ostrich approach to things and you know i mean i think in a lot of the conversation we've already had there's an implicit joke of like you know an egyptian goose in a drainage ditch in south florida is does not equal you know bristle thighed curlew on the tundra of alaska or something as a you know soul-stirring experience but as you guys you know demonstrate all the time and, and you know, we're sitting here at ABA headquarters and we're all like, you know, we're all just totally stoked that we just saw our first laughing gull of the spring out the window of our yard. You know, having that focus on, on a
2: smaller area sometimes makes everything mean more. When we talk about context, if you are excited about your own city, then mm-hmm. seeing birds in that city are, you know, is a lot more exciting. Like, George and I are all about birding you know Philadelphia and we could you know we're very close to Cape May which is arguably the, the single greatest spot to watch birds in all of America but yet we can see all these birds in one day there but or you could if we see just one of those in a season in Philly we're so much more excited to see you know one of these um you know a warbler that you know, if you saw a swirling warbler on City Limits, we're so excited about it. Or we see a, a
7: golden winged warbler in Philly, Yeah, not a golden
2: winged warbler in Cape May. They're yeah. both golden winged warblers, but it's a different experience. And I think people should try find other ways to get excited about you can manufacture that excitement if you just think differently. And and that's what I you know, what's cool about listing is that you can you know, you can be like this is my you know, park, and I'm excited about what I can see in my park. This is my yard. This is my city. I only, I only care about two lists, my Philly list and my ABA list. <laughs> hey, and, it's interesting. You know, two, two things. I totally care about my
6: list, but I, I don't care. I mean, what I care about is the experiences that that list represents. I mean, you heard, I, even despite having devoted a lot of time and energy and resources to getting that 740 something total i can't tell you exactly what it is it's just you know it's just a way of maybe in some very rough sense measuring this whole body of emotional experience and that is really the key so i care about the birds i've seen a lot more than i care about the list per se and i think that's true for the vast majority of birders.
7: <laughs> yeah I, I think of it often as the, the, my ABA list is like my diary mm-hmm. and you know you know when I started listing I think I, I remember my 300th bird I don't remember my 200th bird my 300th bird was American Avocet and, and it was at that point I thought I'm gonna start keeping track and I'd see an American Avocet and I had a notebook and I'd write you know 300 American Avocet and then I have notes about where I saw it you know who I saw it with and I did that all the way up through mid-600s, and then I kind of lost track of it. But, you know, and I think for a lot of birders, it is sort of like a diary. It's a mm-hmm. measure of the experience you've had. Uh, it's not necessarily, the list is not the end game, it's the journey.
6: Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, Tony, you raised a really interesting point about saying, you know, I really care about my Philly list and my ABA list. I think that's so true, like, for a lot of folks, maybe it's not their city list, maybe it's their yard list. But, you know, for urban dwellers, I think a city list makes a huge amount of sense. Or, you know, a lot of birders use counties, whatever. But, like, that that very local list, um, you know, the two ends of the continuum is almost where the circle connects. You know, that on the one hand, um, you people typically start out at home and, and seeing the birds right around them. As they go on, they they, for many of us, there's this thing of, like, you branch out and sort of want to you know, explore the horizon and everything like that. And a lot of us find as time goes by, we're more and more intrigued by the challenges, many of them entirely self-imposed, of seeing what we can
2: figure out locally. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to talk about before we go is, um, well, two things, mm-hmm. um, is South Texas, because we're talking about Florida and, the, and the, most of the specialty birds that come into Florida um, that we're talking about are introduced, and they live in these novel ecosystems in, in, in urban areas, like parakeets and birds from Asia. Um, but South Texas gets, and Florida does get natural vagrants from the Caribbean. But South Texas gets a lot of vagrants from Mexico. But what's interesting is is we're getting to see birds from South Texas that are coming into people's yards, right? And like, uh, because people have planted out their yards or the trailer park, or whatever, with uh, vegetation it, and with a water regime that's not natural. So can you talk a little bit about birds that are regularly occurring in South Texas, but not to like the wildlife refuges but are, are showing up in people's yards, like the Crimson Collar Grosbeak and things like that? Have you noticed a trend like that? Well,
6: um, in the specific um, you know, area you're talking about, about the Lower Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, um, one thing to remember is that these really uh, lushly landscape yards that are planted um, predominantly or totally in native plants, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like Alan Williams' yard and far it's attracted a bunch of vagrants and stuff. In this odd case, they are actually mimicking the more natural South Texas habitat than even a place like Santa Ana or Benson right now, because the the valley, sorry, the the river, which that whole ecosystem. And people say Rio Grande Valley; it's actually a delta. And um, that river used to be able to flood and jump its banks and and water the vegetation and fertilize the soil really frequently. Well, now so much water is pulled out of that river for irrigation, and of course you know the the border patrol and everything is not going to be enthusiastic about you know us suddenly ceding a bunch of acres to Mexico or you know because right. the river jumped its banks the river's really controlled and in in a very ironic way some of these yards and stuff are are mimicking the the more native conditions it has been remarkable with both the birds and butterflies like how um an area that was Oh, like ninety-five plus percent deforested for agriculture and suburbs, you can still bring these amazing wild birds and wild animals. Um, you know, just build it and they'll come. Excellent.
2: And are there any? And if there aren't, if you don't have any, we'll mm-hmm. just edit it out. But are there any urban initiatives for the ABA that you could speak to that were specifically urban initiatives that you're you think that you're working on?
6: Um, well, I would say that the the first thing is just, you know, awareness. And I think that those of us here on the staff are really thinking in, thinking of our audience as including urban dwellers. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's always been plenty of Manhattanites and Los Angelinos in the birding community. But I, I think the thing that is a shift is realizing you don't have to be in Glacier National Park to have a legitimate, exciting birding experience. You don't have to be there to make a discovery that's really like valid or scientifically interesting. So that's number one. The the second thing I would say is just in moving the headquarters from Colorado out here to the mid-Atlantic. Now Colorado, you know, had certainly Denver, classic urban area, um, diverse urban population, but out here we have... A huge opportunity to interact with a with a larger urban population and kind of get beyond that sort of traditional birder, you know, stereotype of older, whiter, you know, etc. And we're actually starting to see with our Young Birder programs really increased participation. And I don't have any like specific initiative that I can unveil for you here, but I can tell you that this is is something that we are really, really interested in, um, is how can we make, you know, even people who live in the proverbial concrete jungle, you know, feel like birding is as available to them as somebody who lives,
2: you know, um, in in the Smoky Mountains somewhere. (laughs) So this year's Mm -hmm. Bird of the Year is Green Heron. Right. Last year was Nighthawk, or is it the year before? Um, Let's see. uh, Kestrel, Grosbeak, Nighthawk, Green Heron. So of those four... Um, oh, sorry. No, no. I knew we were skipping one.
6: Rufus Hummingbird was twenty four. Rufus
2: Hummingbird. So, yeah, there you go. Um, so, Rufus Hummingbird, mm-hmm. Kestrel, Nighthawk, Green Heron mm-hmm. are all four birds that are extremely common in their urban environment. Mm-hmm. Was that at all intentional? And Grosbeaks, too, come into feeders and people's... You know, uh, I saw them in suburban Albuquerque you know, just this winter.
6: What we're really, what we've really tried to do with the bird of the year program from the the beginning is, you know, because a lot of times traditionally the ABA might be associated with things like, you know, black cat gnat catcher or, you know, bared sparrow. These very, very restricted range kind of arcane species that if you're going to see a huge ABA list, you've got to go see. And they're wonderful. You know, they're awesome to see. What we wanted to try to do with the bird of the year was to pick species that we feel like are charismatic enough, beautiful enough, fascinating enough that they can actually mint new birders, that they can be the spark bird for a new birder. And yet, they're also species that like, just don't lose their appeal. You know, there are maybe some birds that I don't know. Maybe we'll have Ringville Gulf for Bird of the Year someday, but uh, I, I don't really see it. Um, we're, we're trying to pick species that, like, whether you've seen it for the first time or the five thousand, it can really be pretty pretty darn cool. Thanks for the opportunity to my, <laughs> chew through some
2: of this stuff with you. My pleasure. And I want to let you know, um, even though this is the Urban Wildlife Podcast and I'm, it's something I'm involved in, mm-hmm. this is actually the first bird related interview we've done it and we've <laughs> done like, and like maybe the last
3: and w- w- what are we listening to right now? we're listening to a spot breasted Oreo, your life bird you lucky sucker you yes indeed 6.04 this is a great trip let's go get 5
2: and 6
1: So I'll pull this back in just with, with something we can all identify, and Tony and I are going to pull this out for later use in the show, which is... Unholy trio! Yes. Which uh, I've been trying to find it in my heart to appreciate somehow. Um, and the knowledge that, that the rock dove, aka pigeons, are feeding peregrine falcons gives them some redeeming value, mm-hmm. even if you don't find them valuable in and of themselves. Um, but I was.
0: You know, the I watched a hawk take a pigeon down in the middle of the quad at 10 when I was a freshman, and it was fantastic. It was a bunch of rich kids from like Long Island gathered in a circle. Just they were at first they were like, "Wow, it's a hawk!" And then it just tore this pigeon like limb from limb, and there was just a bunch of like shocked eighteen-year-olds. There was an interesting discussion
1: about dwindling budgies. Like so. It, were these budgies that are dwindling that he mentioned, are they a listed, like, established exotic?
2: They were, and I'm, I think they might have removed them from the list because they're so... But th-
1: that's, like, an interesting question of, like, what counts as established, you know, because if something has dwindled, evidently it wasn't really established. And, like, it, it makes me think of, in Philly, we, we had, for many years, a well-known population of Italian wall lizards. That lived um, in West Philly, actually, yeah, in a zoo. the zoo. Most- but then there's been another reintroduction of those, in uh, starting I think from Garden City, Long Island, that spread out, um, and now they're all the way to South Jersey
0: um, and all over New York. See if that sticks. Yeah, oh, and then it makes you wonder what. what- Cause the population to to boom and bust. Whether so was there some resource they were exploiting that was finite and they ran out, or yeah. you know, did they come up against a weather pattern they couldn't deal with? So is it a global warming? Phenomenon or is it just like now they're going to survive because it's two degrees warmer? Or is people? any
1: isolated introduced population, is like an island population, right. that right. Any uh, one of my favorite terms, stochastic event, perturbation, yeah, perturbation, another good word, um, could like could wipe them out and they don't, they can't get repopulated.
2: Perturbations on tour is a stochastic event. I
1: think they just played. They just played. Merlin Deathfest was awesome. <laughs> I really. hear that a creeping growth form is opening for them. Oh yeah, yeah. of yeah. course. Uh,
2: <laughs> but I think I think it's only a matter of time where creeping growth form is like touring, and headlining their own shows. They're,
1: just, they're ready to bust out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the themes I liked in there is how we have our things that we're we're excited to see. Period. So like the question is. What do you find in a city that even though you might not be so psyched about it outside the city, when you find it in the city, it blows your mind? for me, I've got two species of snake that I love outside of a city, but I have a special quest to find them inside the borders of Philadelphia. Um, Both have been documented. People show me pictures, drives me nuts. Um, The black rat snakes and and common milk snake.
4: Well, I mean, it depends on where you are in the city. You know, there are big swaths of Fairmount Park that... They don't feel quite so city as cracks in the sidewalk. Like, cracks in the sidewalk are going to raise more eyebrows. Have you
1: thought about your special crack plant yet? I've
4: been thinking about my crack plant, and I still haven't picked one. I'm
1: sorry. All right. Well, telling you, like, what are birds that, like, you see?
2: A Golden Eagle is the number one for me.
1: You saw it in Philly?
2: No, no, no. I have not seen Philly. Oh, yeah. But you think
1: you're going to see it passing over?
2: Yeah, because, I mean, we're not... you know, we're on the Eastern Flyway. I mean, flyways, I don't think, are as finite as people think they are, but we are on the Eastern Flyway, and uh, people have seen them over Philly before, and the regular Hawk Mountain, the regular Cape May, we're in between the two. Um, people have seen them in Alicia Hill, or us out of the city, and cities south of it. Um, and they've tracked them with satellites. And they've seen they go right over the city. See one flying over the city would be awesome.
1: Al, you were talking about like the plant people being somewhat like as you call it, plant blind in the city.
4: Oh yeah, good not word. just plant blind in the city. I mean, it's not a strictly a city phenomenon. Just people in general. This is something has talked about. Are, are incredibly plant blind. I mean, the average American is pretty much good with like tree, shrub, yeah, plant, and beyond that there was something, someone was talking about how the birders get involved because they start seeing birds like out of their backyard windows. Yeah. They start getting kind of sucked in by that because birds are cute, personable, and hoppy. But you don't, really like an of, <laughs> you don't really run into a lot of... You uh, don't really run into a lot of botany types who got into...
1: Because of some charismatic because of some charismatic, Because <laughs> of some
4: charismatic chenopodium that they were, you know, weeding Ooh. out of their yard. I think the clammy
1: goosefoot could be that plant.
4: I think you're far more likely, at least in my experience with botany people, to get sucked in by the exotic, attractive things that you see at botanical gardens or arboretum, and then you get more into the sort of, you know, more mundane things that you find around you. And, um,
0: Plants definitely have a way of becoming background. I mean, so yeah, I yeah. spend a lot of time in nature, and until I really learn, like sat down to force myself to learn tree species, too, they literally, for me, until a couple years ago were just trees.
4: Well, yeah, and I mean, there's giant gaps in my botanical knowledge, things that I've never bothered Asterisk, but once yeah, you, to weed through. A, <laughs> 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 um, but once you put a name to them, it's a
0: totally different experience.
4: Yeah, and once you... No, eat, I've been having been, that
1: experience with the plants, where, like, I, I will look at vacant lots, and, and I can ID more than I can't.
4: Yeah, and 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 it's only different. And now I'm
1: like, now I'm not just like, oh, what is that? I'm like, it's some kind of... Amaranth, it's not Mm -hmm. the four that I know. Right now, I kind of want to email Allie or Dave Hewitt and be like, What is that?
4: Slotted into families at least. Yeah, like, all
1: right. Have you seen any United States species or like what you think of as the local natives in other cities around the world? You're like, Oh, that's just a. And then you're like, Wait, but I'm in Hong Kong, it shouldn't be here.
2: I can't. Well, I'm thinking of the Nazi raccoons. Nazis love messing with everything, but. So, so there was, like, a, a Nazi who was, like... Nazis
0: messed a lot of stuff
2: he, Yeah. He was, like... He wanted to, like, improve the fauna of Europe. So yeah. he introduced raccoons to Germany, and now they're, like, all over. So Wait,
0: Hitler? Adolf Hitler introduced raccoons to... Someone in
2: his... I forget, it was Goebbels or one of those jerks.
0: Do you know how much World War II bullshit I know? And I have never heard that story. <laughs>
2: Here's a headline. Here's a headline. A black army of Nazi raccoons, raccoons forced Germans to admit defeat. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi raccoons on a warpath. Exotic invasive. So you went to Miami. Do you go to any other... Have you been to any
1: other cities like looking for exotics specifically?
2: Um, Miami was the first time I really made an effort. It's also a function of the fact that I'm like, oh, I'm running out of birds that I got to see. So the
1: list is driving you to...
2: Yeah, because I'm like, oh, I'm like, man, I've seen so much stuff. I'm like, well, oh, there's like seven birds I can get on my list in Florida. I think partly due to this podcast, or not so much this podcast, but my mentality, my interest that led to us doing this podcast together also got me interested in like these urban birds. So I think... I might have overlooked them before. I'm kind of like I don't want to go after these introduced species, but I'm like now that I think it's kind of cool, and I have a different viewpoint on them. You know, I, there's definitely other you know ones I want to go track down and see. I mean, like the uh, Eurasian tree sparrow in St. Louis. It's very similar. It's a congener with the house sparrow, but it's it's only really restricted to the St. Louis area.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me, since this is probably my only chance to bring this up on your podcast, of a, a, a paradox about you that's always fascinated me, Billy. That you. Hate sprawl. I hate, hate sprawl. You hate human habitation in general. I do hate sprawl. I don't and, hate sprawl. Well, it. you hate the impact of humans on nature. Yeah. So I there, do. There, there are these two flip sides to your personality as a naturalist where, you know, when we're driving to some pristine area to herp, you're cursing people with lawns and. Because they take up so much space. I, I'm, I, but then right. there's this other part of you that is in love with. Nature sneaking into a com- entirely human habitat like yeah,
4: he's just cheering for nature every time well, like. Yeah, but
0: why isn't he cheering for nature in that guy's lawn?
4: I also I
1: also sort of you know, maybe like a lot of people have this trait like you root for the underdog and yeah, so like I think that totally. like Yeah, you're gonna find cool things in your swimming pool in your backyard in the suburbs, you know like Interesting snakes maybe get washed up in there or your cat dragged in from the backyard but like I think it's it's yet cooler when you find the black rat snake in an urban park next to the projects rather than just like in a spot that used to be like an overgrown farm field up until 15 years ago.
4: It's also kind of like cheering for nature to survive us. Yeah. Like when you see it coming through the cracks and curbs and sidewalks.
1: But then like, what if it's, but then like it's surviving, it's not just surviving us though. It's like, there's something neat about and I guess I could feel the same way about suburbs if I cared enough. It's like the novel ecosystem idea, that it isn't like anything else
0: on the planet. It's like we're, that we're living in the Anthropocene. It's right. We're in a new era. Nature's not going to stop just because we have. Right. And we're in a new era, Nature, the, we right. and, a new
1: era and we and we shape us. We're a keystone species, shaping particular landscapes in particular ways. And so it's all. It's like I find it fascinating to see. What moves in with us. Well, and, and
0: this is going to be the story, I think, for naturalists of the next 50 years of our lives is learning to live with what happens next. Because we, yeah. we have pretty much despoiled everything at this point. We're getting, you know, in the next 50 years, we will finish despoiling everything. Everything. And we will have to learn to live with the remnants and what happens next. Which, yeah. You know, and learn to love it or not. Did you think of your sidewalk crack plant yet,
1: Allie?
4: No, now I'm totally impressed.
1: Coming up on the next episode... Okay, next episode, (laughs) we're (laughs) going to... Yeah, that's the whole point. My apologies. (laughs) So we're going
2: to... He's not Snoop Dogg, I'm not (laughs) Nate Dogg. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We're just dogs. Um, We're going to
1: talk to Len Albright, um, who is a, a sociologist and avid fisherman... Striper enthusiast, uh, and we're gonna hear not
2: not the Christian metal band. A striper enthusiast. There's a triple. There's a Christian metal band called Striper. Yeah.
1: Well, there you go. No, I don't think he doesn't knows anything about them. But we're gonna talk about uh, urban fishing. Sort of fishing as a gateway to the natural world and connections to like broader ecological topics. Hmm. Um, and we'll hear all about his new book.
2: Watch birds every day. I also have this, yeah, I, I mean, gonna I have this other thing about, I really want to, like, I don't know if this is possible, but I would love to be, like, a black bear's little spoon while I, I want the big spoon for a raccoon. I Explain
0: this some more. That is I, the weirdest thing anyone has ever seen. I would like to, you know, you're, like, a cuddle you pile. You want a spoon with a black
1: bear and a raccoon. <laughs> Imagine I, the bites you're going to get from their parasites.
2: Maybe. I would just love to, like... And from them, <laughs> <laughs> I just wish. I wish that, really like,
4: so so like, you know, like,
2: you know, like, yo, don't you like when, like, your cat curls up in your lap or like your dog? But imagine if a bear if was your friend. A bear sandwich. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> as as I say, there's a beautiful calico cat that's just coming up to get love from me. We, we, Which is obviously interspecies friends, and that would be awesome I if feel I feel like it. we should point
0: go? out for anyone still listening that you consumed an entire glass of limoncello <laughs> and I'm not even lo- earlier, earlier in the You're like 10
1: <laughs> ounces chasing a Miller High Life.